From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. Science and technology that is accessible and entertaining. And if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Katie Mullally. Our first guest this morning is renowned computer security expert and best-selling author Bruce Schneier, who joins to discuss his new book, A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. In it, he reveals an array of powerful actors whose hacks bend our economic, political, and legal systems to their advantage at the expense of everyone else. Our next guest is Jeremy Wagstaff, a technology journalist who has written for the BBC, Reuters, and the Wall Street Journal, and is the author of the article, The Real Threat from AI. In Jeremy's words, we are asleep at the wheel when it comes to AI, partly because we have a very poor understanding of ourselves. We need to get better fast. These guests, when we return, stay with us. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm Katie Mullally. Well, what exactly is a hack? A hack is any means of subverting a system's rules in ways that were unintended by its designers. When we think about hacking, we often think about someone finding a way into our bank account or into our Facebook world. But our next guest, Bruce Schneier, warns about the far-reaching implications of hacking in his new book, A Hacker's Mind. He takes hacking out of the world of computing and uses it to analyze the systems that underpin our society. Bruce is a fellow and lecturer at Harvard's Kennedy School and the Chief of Security Architecture at Inrupt Inc. and an internationally renowned security technologist called a security guru by The Economist. He joins us now. Bruce, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thanks for having me. So, Bruce, tell us, first of all, when I think of a hack, I think of it being like cheating, but somehow a loophole that that makes it, quote unquote, OK, but not necessarily uh, morally upstanding. But you kind of got it right. A hack is something that follows the rules, but breaks their intent. So I think about computer hacks, which is really where the term comes from. A hack is something that the computer program allows, right? You can do it, but it breaks the intent of whatever the system is. It allows you to gain access or steal money or get some privilege that you shouldn't, but the the code, the program allows it. So it's a mistake. I think you use the word loophole. And that's a really good word for this. It's a loophole in the rules. Right. So one of the things you seem to be trying to do in your book is make us aware of what what the hacks are out there. And for the average person, you know, just just reading your chapter on the ATM hacks, for example, you know, we know that that there's there are vulnerabilities if we go to an ATM. We're not sure how complex they are, but these are the th- kinds of things that you point out in your book. Um, can you tell us about why why you're explaining all the hacks and what you want us to do as readers. So I want to take this term hack out of the computer field and move it into the more general world. And we have an intuition for this. So uh, a good example would be uh, a tax loophole, right? Tax code is not computer code, but it's a series of rules, algorithms, inputs and outputs. And like any set of rules, it has mistakes, it has oversights, it has 
things that the creators didn't think of. And some of those are bugs. They're mistakes. And some of those bugs are vulnerabilities. And we call those vulnerabilities tax loopholes. And then the exploits that people use to exploit those loopholes are called tax avoidance strategies. And in the computer field, we have black hat hackers who find them. In the tax field, there are tax accountants and tax attorneys. So that is a really a, a generalization of this of this idea to the rules of the tax code. And you can think of the same thing in the rules of a sport, in the rules of an airline frequent flyer program, in in the rules of laws of our country and the laws that regulate finance or taxi rules. So what I want people to, to get is that this notion of hacking is general, that it's useful and interesting to think of ways people subvert the rules in this way and the defenses that we develop in the computer field against you know the computer hackers we, we see in the movies and read about in the news those defenses are actually also generalizable to non-computer hacks. Yeah, one of the things I love about the book is the history of hacks. Because like you're saying, we typically associate hacking with something computer technological. But when you were talking about the hack for getting into heaven and the history of hacking, can you tell us a bit more about that whole idea of the hacking into heaven? So... Hacking is a computer term. Right? This is not a term that has been used uh, throughout the millennia. I mean, I, people have been hacking, you know, since the beginning of of people, but the term comes from the computer field, model railroad field, uh, MIT, and it it is embedded in technology. When you think of this broader way of of subverting rules, you can find lots of examples in history, and I pull a bunch from religion. The one you're thinking of is, is selling of indulgences that in, in the medieval Catholic tradition, you can really pay to absolve yourself of your sins. Right? The, the notion that if you sin, you do penance. And one of the, the ways you could do penance is to give money because that you know money is equivalent to work you've done. So it's in effect working for the church and for God for forgiveness. And in the, the the church kind of moved into this world where you can sell these indulgences before the sins were committed, right? So you can buy effectively a get out of sinning free card, and then you could resell these to other people. And it gets super weird in the late Middle Ages as this is kind of an unlimited currency. The church can print. They could print as many indulgences as they want. And now there's a market for them. And this is actually one of the primary things that Martin Luther uh, was against when he nails his 95 Theses on the wall and starts the Reformation, that the Catholic Church is like turning into this bank effectively, selling indulgences. You know, and I don't mean to pick on the Catholics. I grew up Jewish, and there were all sorts of hacks that my uh, more observant cousins and their family would do to, to, to you know, get out of the fact that you can't turn on a light during the Sabbath, but they wanted to watch the hockey game on television. So they're setting up timers and 
making sure the channel's set. So before sundown on Friday, everything's set that they can watch the TV shows. And that's kind of, I mean, they're not breaking the rules, but come on. I mean, if the rules of the Sabbath are, it's supposed to be a special day. It shouldn't be a trick that gets you to watch the hockey game. I mean, that 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 can't be right. But in fact, it 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 is right, and that that's the way the religion works. And so to speak to something of hacking, that in the in the Catholic case, it, it is actually a really interesting way for the church to raise money. We can argue if it's uh, you know, theologically a good idea. In in the Jewish case, and my cousins, it's a way to take a two thousand year religion. And make it work in modern day New York, you know, which is literally hard. So there's a lot of great hacking stories in the book. And one of the things I, I like about writing this is, is pulling stories from all sorts of areas uh, of society. So what is the difference then between hacking versus cheating? Because some might argue that your your cousins were cheating on the Sabbath and watching hockey. The difference is whether it's against the rules or not. It turns out if you sort of read the letter of Jewish law, it says you can't light a light on the Sabbath. And that's been extended to mean that you can't turn on something. You can't turn on the power. So I can't turn on a stove or the television or anything that's electrical. But if I set a timer to do it automatically, I didn't turn it on. I, it, it turned on by itself. It was Thursday that I said it, and the rules say nothing about what I can do on Thursday. So just like if you go in Jerusalem uh, to a hotel on the Sabbath, the elevator stops at every floor all the time. You, so you can't push the button to, to make it stop at floor seven. But if you go into the little box, and the little box goes to every floor and opens up, you didn't do any work. Right? So, so that's the difference. So I'll give you an example from sports. One year, I think in the 1970s, a team shows up on the Formula One racetrack with a six-wheeled car. And everyone says, that's cheating. You can't have a six-wheeled car. And the team pulls out the rule book and says, show me. <laughs> and it turns out the rules are silent yeah. on the number of wheels a car could have. Right? So that's a hack. It's not against the rules. But no one thought of it before. It's certainly not intended. Now, in the Formula One case, the actual Formula One racing committee, I don't know what they're called, they have some French name, uh, changed the rules. And if you go to the rule book today, Formula One racing, you will see that the rules say that a car can have no more than, or no less than, in case you get any other ideas, four wheels. And that's often what happens in hacks. The rules are updated to either prohibit them or permit them. <laughs> if you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're speaking with Bruce Schneier. He's written a book called The Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. So Bruce, there is this, this fine line, and I think this is what you're trying to determine and make us aware of, uh, between taking advantage of things that we ought to if we're smart, like certain loopholes in in the tax code. But there becomes this tipping point where we go beyond into the, you know, probably ethically or morally corrupt stage of loopholing. 
um, you know, where there are certain very famous people who say, you know, who don't pay any taxes, who say, I'm just being smart. So how are we, how do we recognize that in ourselves and in others, that tipping point? So this is hard. And, and the tax code's a good example for it. So if you find a loophole in the tax code, it's something that the law permits but was unintended by the designers, you're clever. And, and hacking has a, a notion of cleverness. You found a trick. You found something that you could do. You're not breaking the rules. But hacks are inherently parasitical. So if, you know, not you or I, if someone wealthy finds a loophole in the tax code, that hurts all of us. I mean, the, the, the government's getting less revenue. So I'll give a real example. Uh, Peter Thiel uh, found a loophole in the Roth IRA that is allowing him to save, not an exaggeration, billions of dollars in taxes. Now, yes, he's clever, but that's billions of dollars of lost revenue, and that really shouldn't be. So the notion of legal, legal and moral diverge. And we can differ as to whether these things are moral and whether you should do them. It's hard to argue that if, uh, you know, if I can read the rules in such a way to pay less tax that I shouldn't do it. it <laughs> certainly, the government should step in and patch the loophole so that I can't, if we all agree that I'm you know, taking advantage of, of a rule that, that shouldn't be there. But that's actually hard. The carried interest loophole in the United States tax code has been around for decades, and we can't seem to patch it because politically it's it's very hard. Even though we all kind of agree that you know the rules were never intended for it to be there, and so there is this difference between what is legal and what is moral. And in our society, basically we go by what's legal. Right. We don't penalize you for doing something legal but immoral now right what does penalizing look like there how does society react these are all complex social concepts that i'm not sure i'm able to to tease out i read the hack that peter Thiel used to save billions of dollars in taxes and i didn't really understand it can you explain it so the thing about hacks is they're often hard to understand right because they involve you know clever ways of reading the rules. So there's something called the Roth IRA, which is an IRA invented for middle-class taxpayers. They can save a couple thousand dollars a year in taxes. But the way the rules were written, Peter Thiel was able to use money in his Roth IRA to invest in his own company when the stock was artificially very, very cheap. And as the stock appreciated to become valuable, all of that stock was in the Roth IRA and thereby shielded from tax. This is another aspect of hacking that's worth talking about, that it is generally done by the rich and powerful. So we normally think of hacking as countercultural, that the computer vision is a, uh, you know, a kid, antisocial, is doing it against the powerful. But in fact, even in computers, the United States National Security Agency, they're the world's best hackers. You know, hacking tends to be done by the already powerful. So that tax loophole, I mean, you and I could in theory take advantage of it, 
But we don't start multi-billion dollar companies. Like we are not that kind of person. So the tax loophole doesn't benefit us. You know, we can't hack that. Even if I just explained to you how it works, you're not going to go home and do it. I didn't go home and do it. It is something available to the rich. And the rich are generally better at hacking. They are better at finding hacks because they can pay people to do the research. They are more able to take advantage of them because they have more resources to bring to bear. And also, they are better at ensuring that their loopholes become legal. So I don't know if you remember, but in the year after the Donald Trump tax cuts, there was a change in the tax law that made, I think I'm going to get this right, the taxes, the property taxes you paid, no longer tax deductible. And this was political. It hurt people in like New York and California more than in the center of the country because they generally have high property taxes. So someone said, wait, I have an idea. I'm going to prepay my property taxes for next year, this year. So I pay the amount in the current year when the deduction still stands, even though the tax is going to be credited for the next year. That was a hack. Now, the IRS looked at that and said, no, you can't do that. Right? So that hack was quickly made illegal by the authorities in charge. Now, were that hack only done by the rich, the lobbying would be more intense and it would be more like the carried interest loophole, which is something that hedge fund managers take advantage of, not people like us, which has been around for decades. It's amazing to see the creativity that goes into these hacks. I mean, this is these are people that know a lot about any system, understand the reg, the regulations, the legalities. And so it's it's fascinating to see these larger hacks, but in your book, you talk about some of these small hacks that we all become victim to every day, such as those pre-checked boxes on a website when you purchase something. How can we watch for these little everyday hacks that we're falling prey to? So I talk about this as cognitive hacks, the ways that systems hack our cognition. And, you know, they're the, the ones we grew up with when the price is $8.99, which is actually $9, but... When we see $8.99, we think it's cheaper, right? You know, that's a hack, right? That is a trick that is affecting us cognitively. And, you know, advertising is full of them, right? You, you buy the car or you drink the soft drink and suddenly you become popular, which I'm pretty sure doesn't actually work, but, you know, commercials want us to think that way, right? And, and these are sort of all over the internet, these persuasive techniques. You talked about something which is known as a dark pattern. And this is a term in the, in the computer field of a manipulative user interface. So a pre-checked checkbox or where the, the, the option to do it is big and in green and the option not to do it is very small and hard to read letters that's hard to find. Or you go to an ad and the, the X to make it go away is in a weird corner and you've got to look for it, right? And that's designed to have the ads show up on your screen more. These are all uh, hacks. They're all dark patterns. And it's actually very hard because I'm mean, talking about patching the hack. Right? You find the tax loophole, you patch it. Someone figures out how to 
you know, get miles in your airline figure flyer program, you patch it. Someone shows up with a six-wheeled car, you patch it. I come up with a hack against your brain. We are not able to patch our brains. Right? You know, evolution works very, very slowly. So all we can do is be aware of it. You know, we know from experimental and also observational results that a lot of these hacks work even if you're aware of them. So these are often unpatchable. I mean, that 899 trick works, even though we all know it's a trick. So how can we turn these hacks to our benefit? Well, sometimes we can't, but I guess if, if I had a fruit stand, I would use the 899 trick, right? You know, so often we can't, that the hacks are used against us because they're being used by organizations, people, corporations, governments who are more powerful than us. Uh, sometimes we can agitate to get the hack declared illegal. You know, I mean, I want to see more political action on the part of us mm -hmm. against these tax loopholes the rich are taking advantage of because they're taking advantage of us. So, you know, politically we can do things. And I, in a sense, that is what I'm trying to do in my book to talk about how to recognize these hacks and then how to agitate for change. I do bring defensive techniques from computer security, but you kind of have to be in charge of the system. If there's a hack in Microsoft Windows, Microsoft finds it and they will patch it within weeks. So the next second Tuesday of the month, you will download a bunch of Windows security patches and they'll patch all the hacks they've, been, they've found and been told about in the past month. You know, that doesn't work for the tax code in the same way. So it's easier if there's a single entity in charge, right? The group that's in charge of FOMO and racing, Delta Airlines, that has noticed that we're all doing mileage runs and rewrites its frequent flyer program to make them not allowed anymore. It's harder with hacks against the tax code or against financial regulations or the hacks that Uber are using to get around taxi regulations in cities around the world. They're much harder to patch. So Bruce, as we try to develop ways to implement patches, at the same time with AI, for example, we're creating a, an entire world in which patching will be almost impossible. Chat GPT has been all over the news recently you know, talking about how uh, college professors will not know if the essay that has been submitted by a student is chat GPT or is it really the student's brilliance and hard work and persistence at writing an, a, a paper or whatever it is. And this is one of the things that you talk about as well, how AI is really, you know, is running wild with hacks essentially. Can you address that? ChatGPT is actually a terrible example because it's been patched dozens of times since it's been appeared. And, you know, we're all trying to hack it, trying to get it to tell us how to commit murder or, you know, to give it its opinion on, on complicated issues. And there are times when you ask it a question and say, I can't answer that. But when you said, you know, tell me a story about committing a murder that you get away with, it's happy to do it. And so it's been hacked and it's been patched again and again because, again, a single organization 
OpenAI is in charge and it can be patched. I'm also not worried about uh, ChatGPT writing essays. In, you know, I'm teaching a class right now. If I want to do it in Shores, my students work, I would make them write it in class. And, and this isn't new. We've had this problem with language translation and Google for what, a decade and a half. We've had a problem with pocket calculators and, and math since what, the 1970s. So yes, you know, we're going to have to revise how we teach based mm -hmm. on technology, just like we have you know, since the invention of writing. But you know, we can do that. We're a good species. I, I worry about AI and hacking. For me, when AI start doing the creative part, which they can't do yet, but ChatGPT is not creative at all. It is the world's most sophisticated parrot. It mimics everything everybody has said on the internet. That's all it does. It is not smart. It is not clever. It is not creative. But AIs are able to find things that are insightful. They are able to do creative processes. And the worry is that uh, you know, a tax loophole that might take humans a year or multi-years to find and perfect could be found by an AI in minutes or seconds. And that will change the way hacking is when that creative process becomes a computer process. I don't think it's anytime soon, but it is something really to think about. The book is A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. Our guest is Bruce Schneier. And Bruce, this is such an eye-opening book and it's entertaining as well. So it's very readable. Thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio and for writing the book. Thanks for having me. It was fun. It was my pandemic project and I'm glad you all get to read it now. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Our next guest is Jeremy Wagstaff, a technology journalist who has written for the BBC, Reuters and the Wall Street Journal, and is the author of The Real Threat from AI, a fascinating yet unnerving article that brings to light the very real limitations of ChatGPT. In Jeremy's words, we are asleep at the wheel when it comes to AI, partly because we have a very poor understanding of ourselves. We need to get better fast. Jeremy, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you, Katie. Nice to be here. So we are all familiar with AI, whether it's in our car, helping us drive a little bit better or the face recognition on our phones, but it seems like the chat GPT system software has, is fairly new, at least it's in, in my world. Can you give us a brief, if possible, overview of what chat GPT is? Sure, I'll do my best. And uh, I'm a kind of technology journalist. I'm not a technologist, so uh, I might uh, get a few things wrong. But what we're essentially dealing with here is ChatGBT is a chat version, a bot, if you like, a conversational bot that is built on the back of a system built by OpenAI, uh, which has recently received funding from Microsoft and was uh, originally funded by Peter Thiel and Elon Musk figures we're, we're, we're familiar with, to try to build uh, an artificial intelligence that could take us to the next level. We're, we're still struggling a little bit. Artificial intelligence itself is fine and we've got very used to it, but it's mostly built for very specific tasks, recognizing photos, whether it's a cat or a dog, et cetera. So the, the hope is that AI will get better. It, it, there's a dream that it might reach what we call artificial general intelligence, which is 
where the artificial intelligence itself is perhaps not sentient exactly, but it's it's closely approximate to what we would think of as human intelligence. And that that is the dream, uh, the, but most people feel like it's a long way away. But ChatGBT, which was launched in November, is just a, a way that anybody can chat essentially with a computer and the computer can give give answers and we've been used to this for 20 years i think we've we've been playing around with this sort of thing and if you ever go to a website and their customer service isn't working they'll try and palm you off with a chat bot but this is uh, on a new level it's uh, much more much closer i suppose to interacting with a real human and an apparently bottomless level of, of knowledge one thing i found fascinating with your article is that I think we all assume that what we get from the computer is going to be accurate. You're going to plug in four plus four into your calculator and you're going to get an answer eight. However, with the article and the discussion you were having with the chat GBT, we found out that that is not even close to reality. Yes, that's right. I mean, we're basically dealing with something that is built on, on language. Uh, what it's trying to do is to auto-correct or to anticipate what it is what the next word is in a, in a conversation, the answer to a question, whatever it is. And it's very, very good at that, but it's entirely confabulated. It, it's just it's just trying to figure out what the next best word is. It's not knowledge-based. And therefore, people quickly find, and I'm not definitely not the first person to find this, but uh, you notice quite quickly that whereas it's it knows a lot about subjects, if you know something about that subject, you'll notice that there are kind of errors uh, within it. Um, and then at the sort of scarier end of it, you will notice that they're quite able to, um, GPT is quite able to conjure up something out of nothing. It's like a creative writing workshop gone mad. That's a good way to put it, Jeremy. Um, it was funny, over the last weekend, I was with a bunch of college friends and someone had chat GPT as at, on their phone as an app, which it was kind of funny. It's, it's been new to me as well. I've read a lot about it, but I didn't actually realize you could be employing its use at, at this moment. And um, so we were all sitting around and it was kind of all part of the fun and the party and everything is to look up things on chat GPT and give it prompts and one of our friends has a a lodge, a hunting lodge, and so we looked it up. We plugged in a few things, and and got, and and it was really all wrong. There were parts of it that were correct, um, maybe parts of it that were Googleable, and other parts of it that were taking AI to, as you describe this this fallibility, this place where it is not good yet, and it is not good enough. Um, and so how do we as humans, you talk about how we accept this fallibility of AI and we still think, oh, no, it's going to take our job jobs away. So what would you say about that sort of thing and how we should go through and decipher it? Well, I, I think that, yes, we've, I suppose, been kind of become immune to mediocrity in a way. We've, we've, we're willing to accept this idea as uh, technology companies have been promoting over the last 10 years, particularly the, 
that something is always going to be a bit broken, that beta is good. And we're, we're used to that. Google essentially introduced that idea with us and we were grateful for it because they gave us Gmail and, and Google search and Google maps and all these kind of things. And we didn't expect them to be perfect. And we were impressed that they, that they worked at all. But I think at the same time, we've, we've uh, maybe allowed our standards to, to drop to the point where we see we're quite ready to see the potential in something like this without really thinking about the the dangers. The, the dangers that a lot of people are talking about is simply that people are going to get it to write their homework. And I'm trying to keep it as far away from my 12-year-old daughter as, as possible. But that is understandable. And everybody says, well, you're using it wrong. You should use it to try to, try to kind of write a poem or to break the log jam in your creativity uh, about writing your, your, your novel. And that, of course, is perfect because this is what we're dealing with here. This, this the model is essentially something that doesn't have a relationship with truth. Truth is not something that it that it understands. Uh, the, the problem for me, the problem that I uncovered, if you like, is that I wasn't using a version. I wasn't actually using Chat GPT itself. Chat GPT is actually just a kind of interface for something which is called GPT three, and they're running out of uh, GPT four uh, in a few weeks. It stands for Generative Pre-trained Transformer. And I won't try and explain that because I know that my knowledge isn't sufficient for me to get anywhere in it. But I happen to be plugging into something that somebody else had created based on exactly the same database, if you like, the same engine out of which chat GPT came. But I was looking at a much rawer version which didn't have the smoother edges that OpenAI had deliberately built into it in order to prevent just the kind of experience that I had. So on one level, you've got this idea that, okay, you're spitting out a lot of stuff that isn't, that isn't true. We know that it's relatively common. It's called sort of hallucination in, in AI. And it means essentially that it's like somebody who's an alcoholic and they, they have problems with their memory and they will confabulate to fill up those gaps in their memory without really realizing it. It's a kind of computer version of that. So I think that that part of it is not necessarily that new, but what I saw was when the intelligence itself pushed back, when I said, this isn't true what you're saying, that this reference you're giving me isn't correct, did you make it up? The bot essentially was saying, no, I didn't, it must be your fault. Whereas when I tried the same thing on chat GBT from exactly the same company, based on exactly the same engine, um, it was very quick to say, oh, well, I'm sorry, I didn't, maybe I got it wrong. A much more socially acceptable version of what we think of as artificial intelligence, if you like. To me, that's the, that's the scary bit here. Mm, yes. You had asked ChatGPT to do a little work for you, something that you had been curious about for a while, which was Hitler's use of sound as a tool of social control which was new to me. And so you thought this was sort of an experiment for you, essentially, to see how it responded to your prompt or to your question. And you didn't necessarily know all the background. You were expecting it to teach you something. Tell us how it went. Yeah, so this is a kind of subject that interests me. I remember hearing actually from an interview with George Martin, the producer of uh, The Beatles, 
who said that he had it on good authority that the Nazis, particularly uh, Goebbels, I think it was, used to build an impressive sound system within the halls where these uh, they would have these mass rallies. And ahead of Hitler emerging onto stage, they would pump infrasound, very, very low, inaudible sound, through the through the auditorium and that would create in the chests uh, the, the body of the the people attending this kind of sense of something happening it wasn't comfortable but then just as hitler came out on stage then that infrasound would go and there would be that surge of psychological relief pleasure which would uh, be associated uh, with the the speaker on stage and i found this fascinating but I couldn't find any real academic uh, research into it. So it was, it was sort of, to me, something that, hey, I'm going to just let's throw it at ChatGPT or GBT3 and, and, and see what they have to say about it. And that's when I started slipping down this slope. If you're just joining us, we are talking with technology journalist Jeremy Wagstaff about the perils surrounding AI and our willingness to believe everything it tells us. Jeremy, you were talking in the article about the idea of hallucinations with AI and going over to that Wikipedia article that you referenced. It's fascinating to read through that because you start to really see how deep this problem can go or how big the snowball can become as it rolls down the hill. For example, where the scientist asked ChatGPT for proof that dinosaurs had built a civilization and ChatGPT came back claiming there were fossil remains of dinosaur tools and even dinosaurs have developed a primitive form of art. Well, that's funny, but also when the system wouldn't stop claiming that that was true, how can we, what do we have against this? Do we have any sort of recourse? Do we have any sort of tools to prove that it's not? It's a really good question, and, and I don't think we do. And I suppose what I find most concerning is that I don't think these problems are seen as something other than kind of mere technical ones. So for me, the, the interesting part of this experience was that you are dealing, if you're dealing with somebody who doesn't kind of get the answer right or, or, or confabulates something, that, that in itself is fine. It's the response to that, which I think... Is, is key here. So I, I don't worry too much about the kind of knowledge elements. I feel like, okay, they might be tweaked over time, but I think AI researchers who are trying to address this hallucination problem don't see it in the right context. They, they feel that it's just one sort of small thing that needs to be fixed. And they, they liken it to something like uh, rude words, self-harm, offensive, offensive language, etc. And I feel it's something completely different to that. We, we have filters for that, but we don't have filters for being kind of misled, if not actually gaslit. Yeah, and you talk about that in your article where it says that these systems must not be allowed to be in a position to persuade us. As we've seen, through the course of the last few years and the and the misinformation that comes out, we're so easily subjected or gullible, if you will, to just whatever somebody else says. And so with the vernacular of hallucinations from the computer, is that AI's or technology's way of softening the idea that this technology can just blatantly lie to us and make stuff up? Well, I think that they would love it if the technology worked and that it's not sort of it's not a deliberate part of what, what they're doing, of course. It's just that they don't, I don't think they take it seriously enough as a sort of psychological issue. There's some very interesting uses of, uh, of this technology, and I don't, 
I'm not kind of belittling it. There's one called uh, Replica, which works as actually a kind of social chat in order to help people who are, are feeling lonely or isolated. And I've read uh, forums on Reddit and elsewhere where this performs a very useful and, and, and real service. And it's, uh, it's sad that we've uh, perhaps kind of come to depend on these things. But I, I do recognize that there's a sort of important use case there. But I do think that we don't really understand about how information that is incorrect can influence us, either in terms of, as I kind of said in the, the blog post, you've got one side where you've got conviction, where people can relatively easily be convinced of something that they might not have been convinced of before. And we've seen that in, in politics in, uh, around the world, but not least in our two countries. And also on the other side is that kind of idea of sowing the seeds of doubt that we can quite easily be kind of put off. However competent we feel we are, however confident we feel we are, it actually doesn't take much in a dialogue or, or otherwise to, to feel for that kind of ground to slip from beneath you. And I don't see any discussion of this really within the, the AI community. Jeremy, if we are so willing to believe, I mean, I think back to the pandemic and I would hear people say things like this. Well, a doctor said that um, whatever, whatever it was, the immunization does not work or you know, whatever. If we are so willing to believe that sort of thing and we're on this trajectory down that path where we're believing more and more, especially if it is on the side of our preconceived notions of what we already believe, how do we go about, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing the questions that you asked Chad GPT in this Hitler example of sound where you say, can you provide references? Can you give me a link? Your link doesn't seem to work. Where did you get this from? On and on and on. Like you come up against this chatbot and you really challenge it. We do not do that in modern society. And so what is the recourse that we have? We need to take your example for, I mean, I wouldn't have gone that far and I'm and bravo to you for doing it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether I was being overly English and, and sort of too polite there, but but I, I did feel that I was being, uh, I did have that kind of visceral sense that I was, that maybe there was somebody at the other end of it who had taken over the keyboard and was just trying to see, you know, where I would, when I would topple over and, and fall over. And yeah, I have to admit, it was it was a strange feeling. And I think that we are not well prepared for a deliberate use of this technology. I I'm quite happy to accept in this case, I was seeing something that maybe the public wasn't supposed to see. There's been a bit of a lag before they've made the API available for chat GPT, so, so that ordinary people or, or developers can sort of build it and in the way that I was using it. And that's maybe a couple of weeks off, but I also felt that I got a glimpse of something that was much more sinister and hadn't been thought through properly. And that's that's the thing that worries me. In answer to your question, I'm not sure that there's much we can do if we don't if we don't already feel relatively confident of the of the knowledge that we have about something. In, in this case, I felt that I knew pretty much everything there was to know, and I was excited to see that there was possibly stuff that I that I hadn't read. And then, of course, you know, bit by bit, the the bricks are removed and the and the whole kind of edifice comes tumbling down. But you're right, I don't know, we can't do that every time. 
And right. I think the last few years have taught us that kind of authority, what we think of as authority, a doctor, an academic, uh, even a government, uh, even a president, even a prime minister, uh, unfortunately, the, the office, the title, and all the trappings associated with it don't necessarily lend it proper authority. We, we, we tend to, um, we, we can be easily misled. So Jeremy, when you had this conversation with the chat bot, the chat GPT about this Hitler and the use of sound for social control, is that how AI gets smarter and smarter if it's challenged? And so would you, if you went through the same activity again, would you have a completely different result because it's learning? It's a really good question. Only the kind of the, the programmers, the people who are actually developing this stuff uh, will, will be able to answer that. But people have noticed that they ask a question uh, initially and the chat says, I don't know the answer to that one. And then a conversation uh, ensues. And then that information is is connected in some way within the, within the AI. So the next time somebody asks that question, the, the AI seems to know. My experience was much more uneven that, that even asking the same question within uh, one one session wasn't particularly revealing. But, but there is an element of that uh, connected here, which does signify in advance. And that's that the, the context of the chat, in other words, what has previously been talked about in the, in the thread will inform the answer. And this is, this is a step forward in, in the sense of previous chatbots wouldn't really, they were just answering what was right in front of them. Whereas apparently now what is happening with these large language models like GPT-3, that they are able to understand the context of that better. And that, that may indicate that what you're talking about, you know, acquired wisdom so that they're able to then provide better answers. So the system you use came from OpenAI. My understanding is that's an open source, accessible to anyone to manipulate, to add on to. Then I looked at an example with Meta, where they released a Blender bot that was not performing to their to their liking. They pulled it due to offensiveness and, and, and inaccuracy. Mm. But because that was a private company, they were able to pull it. So there were some restrictions or parameters or safety nets put around that. But with OpenAI, it's the Wild West, if you will. Is there anything, any safety nets that can be put around that to contain it in any sort of way to keep us safe? Uh, yes, I, I think that open AI may be a little bit of a misnomer. It is sort of open source in some respects and that people can use it. Uh, it's just received a massive funding from Microsoft who said that they would fold it into their Bing uh, search engine. So as one doesn't have to be overly cynical to realize that the kind of release of what we're now talking about and everybody's talking about was a way to encourage um, investment and, and it worked. Uh, Microsoft stepped up. These, these programs do, these projects take an awful lot of money and uh, everybody's now in this game. Google is in this game. Apple, I'm sure, is in this game somewhere that uh, everybody is now kind of realizing that we've had this seismic shift in the last month and now they're all stepping up i don't think there's an obvious way that we can protect ourselves uh, of course my my worry is really from this this the human weakness side of it if you like the, our vulnerability to these things and that's going to attract of course they're going to be commercial exploitation of our of our vulnerabilities that is that is inevitable and uh, i don't think that that's really going to change very much but I, I actually worry more seriously that this could be used 
for political purposes. Um, and I'm not just thinking about, say, kind of Russian attempts to influence an election or something like this. I, I think it it could be used in the in the battlefield. I think it could be used to try to kind of change the perception of whole populations. And this was tended to be something that was, the fear was only that when artificial general intelligence, AGI, the kind of more general human-like intelligence uh, became something that became a reality that we only should worry about it then. And I suppose my concern is that we should start worrying about that stuff now because even within this relatively limited at artificial intelligence, it obviously has the capability to uh, influence an individual or to shape an individual's psychology, mood, or whatever. And that, to me, is something it, it could be easily scaled up to, to deal with, to manipulate whole populations. So, Jeremy, what should we be watching for as this develops? Because I'm thinking, you know, technologies that have come before this, I'm sure there were just as many conversations similar to ours. Oh, it's going to, you know, ruin our way of thinking. It's going to ruin our way of life. It's going to take over. And as far as we know, it hasn't. So hmm. what should we be watching for going forward to one, keep controls over it and know how to recognize it? Yes, I think some people are already kind of looking at this. There's a version called constitutional AI, which uh, is an attempt to try to kind of be more transparent and to understand these issues more clearly. That's I haven't seen within that a discussion of exactly what we're talking about, but it's great to see that some people are kind of looking at this. I think what has to happen actually is that the industry as a whole needs to kind of get together and understand where the parameters lie, what kind of safety checks can be done. And this discussion did take place within OpenAI back in 2019. In fact, they kind of didn't release an earlier version of this because they were worried about the, the implications, the ramifications. I suppose my question to them is, so what has changed to now make you think that it's acceptable to, to put this kind of thing out? But I think within an industry, there has to be a lot more, a lot smarter, more general knowledge and uh, academic uh, background introduced. And the sad thing is that with the round of layoffs that we've seen in uh, Google and elsewhere, that actually those tend to be the people who are, who are let go first. And that's obviously extremely worrying. Um, you remember there was somebody last year who was, was fired for saying that he felt that uh, a version of AI that uh, one company had was, was sentient and he was kind of let go slightly after that. He might have, he, he might be wrong. I mean, it, it, sentient is a really kind of strong word to use here, but I think that he had a point and he he understood it on a psychological level that there was a way that you a relationship could be built between an ai and an individual and that's the point where i think you know that broader debate needs to happen and if it can't happen within the industry then it needs to happen at the government level uh, where people start to sort of ask these kind of questions. Are individuals going to be vulnerable to manipulation, not just buying something they don't need, but maybe even sort of committing an act of violence against others or, or against themselves? And I don't see this debate happening. It tends to be belittled, though we're not there yet. This is 20 years away. But I would argue if we're using these chatbots already to cheer ourselves up and to ease our loneliness, then we're already in that space. There needs to be some uh, regulation or, or self-regulation. Wow, this is coming at us quickly. And I think it's the more we all know, the better. 
So thank you, Jeremy, for joining us today. This gives us a lot to think about and become more aware of around chat GPT and other developing AI. So to read Jeremy's article, visit loosewireblog.com. There's this article and links to many, many others, informative, important articles that Jeremy has written. So Jeremy, thank you again for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning into Cool Science Radio here on KPCW 91.7 in Park City.